Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Tunaris podcast is proudly sponsored by Inline Eco, your trusted partner in asbestos removal and re-roofing services across Ireland. Your peace of mind and safety are our top priorities. For more information, visit inlineeco.ie. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Tonaris podcast. I'm your host, James, and I'll join as always my good friend, Timmy Lamb. Hi, everyone. And we have Frank Baltimore in the hot seat today. You're a local criminal defence lawyer, among other things. That's right, James. It's yeah. not just criminal defence. No, I do lots of other different things, yeah. We should be more well known for the criminal side of things. I believe so, yeah. I would be doing a lot of criminal stuff on a day-to-day basis. Criminal defence, defence solicitors never prosecute. We only defend. We're engaged by clients on that basis, and we are. our concern is the representation of people who are either accused before the court or who may otherwise need advance advice or representation in terms of any dealings with the criminal justice system such as people who might be liable to questioning by the police, liable to arrest by the police. So your first interaction may well be before the court. It may be at a preliminary level Mm -hmm. after some matter of concern reaches the police or maybe about to reach the police and then people like me become involved. Mm. So take us back. Where where are you from? Where did you grow up and how did you get into that role? I'm from Cork, uh, Kilgrave Park, Magazine Road, not too far from UCC. I am uh, advanced in years, but we won't get into that. <laughs> that might surprise some people, but I'm doing this job for quite a long time. Over 40 years? Yeah, 40, I'm in my 43rd year. Well, I qualified yeah. in 1979, believe it or not, and I've been doing this job since 1981. And you're That's a long time. You're, you're a man boy. boy. I'm a man boy. Uh, yeah. My father was a teacher up in the North Mon. My mother was a teacher in Glasheen National School where I went as well on the south side. But they awfully dragged me across the river up to up to the north side to meet all happy people. So I've I've got a I've got a, a leg on either side of the river when I'm a kid. And I went up there, did my leaving cert there in nineteen seventy four. And then I had some, you know, interest in maybe going to UCC. But back then, you know, you checked out everything. I mean I applied for different jobs and different things. But one of the things I was interested in was law by some kind of a very amateur process of elimination because I couldn't add one and one as two in the mathematical world. Science was a mystery, but I was reasonably good at languages and English and that kind of stuff, Irish. So I suppose those things might have been, you know, helpful to uh, 
to you know, certain areas of legal practice. I think they probably are still. And so by that kind of elimination process, I applied for, you know, a BCL degree in UCC, which I entered in 74. And it's a three-year yeah, situation down there. So I graduated in 77. And then I did the what they call the Law Society you know, professional exams, uh, which I completed miraculously in 1979. And then I decided I'd enough of that carry on. And I buggered off to America for a couple of years where I had a great time, but I can't discuss that. Okay. <laughs> Might implicate yourself. <laughs> Statute of limitations still applies to some matters. Uh, but um, so, like, a lawyer covers, can cover a wide spectrum of areas, but yours mainly is criminal defence. Were you draw, what drew you to criminal law? Um, simply because when I came back from America in 1981, I applied for a job. I was really unemployable, actually, to be honest about it, straight and fair, because I had no knowledge of legal matters. I mean, the study is different. You know, academic law is chalk and cheese compared to you know, practical law. But I was given a job by a fellow in North Cork who's long since deceased, God rest him, for a fellow Keith. He was a pretty good operator. And he had a rather large practice, including litigation. And he did certain kinds of you know, court cases and stuff, civil as well as criminal. And for any given reason, I became the delegated lawyer to go to the district court locally in the towns in North Cork, South Limerick, and maybe some parts of Kerry. So I used to drive around to the old courts down that neck of the woods for all those farmers. And I tell you, when you're acting for farmers, back then anyway, it's a very good education. So I began to like it, actually. What kind of cases would you be met with rurally back in those days? Yeah, it's really interesting stuff. Ah, some gas men. You'd have a lot of um, road traffic. You'd have a lot of animal-type cases. I mean, I remember a couple of guys who were like, Cattle rustlers, you know, brucellosis dodgers. I mean, guys who were at the department of, you know, <laughs> agriculture, you know chasing them around the country. Uh, Very funny stuff. Do you know what's big the issue these days? And there's been a few killings really around it as well. Families, within families, because of yeah. land, within the family and one person inheritance and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, you back, believe it or not, actually, you know, Tim, back then you wouldn't have seen a lot of that. Yeah. You would have seen a lot of interfamily, you know, litigation at a civil level. But the stuff that we have seen recently, along with other stuff that goes on in the general sort of societal area, mm. there wasn't actually that level of that kind of behaviour at all, in fact, back then. But of course, like, you know, back then, like 81, 2, 3, 4 and so on out in rural areas, I mean, the idea of, like, serious crime wouldn't come into the picture. <laughs> you might get, you know, burglars coming out to the area, maybe doing a bit of house burgling and stuff like that. But... The stuff that we see now, like, would have, was unheard of back yeah. then, across the boards. It was actually, you know, back then, mm. reasonably low-level crime. Yeah, it would not much involve what, you know, we call indictable crime. You know, many cases going before judges and juries. Like, anything as serious as murder back in those times was just unheard of, you know. Mm. Drug cases were unheard of. Literally, I mean, no matter whether city or county. Yeah. But it was a good grounding in terms of, you know, going to the courts and just learning. Even back then, I'd say, Frank, the amount of court cases that we have today in consideration to back it's then. It's just it's, like... You couldn't put it You couldn't. It was, it was, it's, just a, it's, like, it's just an explosion in comparison with the way it was back then, you know. Yes. I mean, it was like, 
They would be. Like even in Cork City, when I came back and I opened an office in 1986 because I wanted to start my own business. But like, even back then in Cork City, you'd have a district court, maybe two, three days a week for criminal stuff. Now it's, you know, daily, two courts, maybe three courts, weekend courts, evening courts. Oh, we know what it's like inside them courts, Frank. But can you describe for somebody that would be removed from that life what it's like inside a district court, the noises, the ambience, the sounds? I can. First of all, <clears throat> COVID has changed a lot because in the pre-COVID times up to, we'll say, you know, 2020, everybody would be tending to pile into the court, mm. the court in Washington Street. We've moved down to Anglesey Street now in Cork since it's a brand new facility. But leading up to that time, it was just like organized chaos, everybody piling in, dogs, cats, mothers, fathers, everybody out in the hall looking for you, screaming at you, doing my case. There could be a lot of conflict as well, where kind of competing, maybe enemies would kind of, Correct. everybody's in court at the same time, Correct. it's the same court, so you know, yeah. it can be a dangerous place for people can. that are up. I, of, I actually often say myself, James, that it is remarkable how little actually happens in the way of actual physical activity, actual physical sort of conflict between competing interests, let's say assaults, feuds, stuff like that. There are flashpoint events. Yeah, but they're real. Like, but like for some, maybe it's Cork, I don't know. But the level of conduct by people towards people with whom they might have a, an, an issue or an argument is actually remarkably uh, good. I often do worry that sometime out there we'll get to hear about an event that will have happened in court and where it'll be this kind of, I told you so, yeah. we needed to be more careful, this could have happened. But like to give the guards credit, mm. they would have intelligence about some possibilities that could occur and discreetly they do actually keep an eye on things yeah, yeah. in a subtle way that you mightn't even realise sometimes. And therefore, maybe that's a contributor to avoiding that sort of conflict. Mm. But yeah, it amazes me that yeah. sometimes, guys, we're lucky yeah. that it doesn't go on. And, yeah. you know, Dublin the same. Yeah. It's pretty fortunate. Mm. Do you remember um, McGrourke, Todd? Mm. I sure do. He was a character, wasn't he? He was. He was a great guy. Uh, I remember he... He's still, he's still alive and well. He, is he? Quite the judgment of McGrourke if yeah. he's watching. I remember yeah. uh, being he in would. court. Even as a young, young, young lad, yes, he's sixteen, and uh, he be in there, and he looking around and calling my mother up, and saying, "Look what you're doing to that woman! Can you <laughs> see what you're doing? Look at her! Look at her! Tell me, Missus, where's he at home? What's he doing?" And then my mother, my mother was very, she was quiet that way, you know, she was very, very quiet. But I, I'd be sitting in there, and it's only now that I can understand. Back then, I used to be absolutely mortified. Yeah, you know, okay. But no, I can understand that there was a humanistic side to him, yeah, right? Where he was, yeah. wanted to help you and leave yeah. you see what you were actually doing to your mother and father. A lot of young fellas, they don't, like they're 15, 16, 17, they don't really kind of see that stuff. They're, they're full of testosterone, they want sure. to be doing their thing, they want to be climbing up the ladder or whatever game they're involved in, you know what I mean? I That's how it is, you know. But like, he was a lovely man, he still was, is. Was, yeah. and he, you're quite right, actually, Tim. The Toonaries podcast is proudly sponsored by Inline Eco, your trusted partner in asbestos removal and re-roofing services across Ireland. Your peace of mind and safety are our top priorities. For more information, visit inlineeco.ie.
that he could see what was out there in front of him. Mm. He could actually look at people, assess the scenario, the mother with the kid, the father with the kid, the kid who comes in with nobody, the kid who comes in with his buddies like a hard man, yeah. and all the whole stuff. Like He was a very wise man. He was a teacher, by the way. That was his original profession. Yeah. He was a radio broadcaster. Yeah. Go well, right. He broadcast up in the old Cork jail when it was a radio station. But he was a very wise man, yeah. I have to say. I used to brief him when he was a barrister yeah, because yeah. I started out doing that kind of stuff and when he became a judge. But like we used to have a great crack. Yeah. Yeah. Got watching him. Yeah. And we used to, myself and a couple of colleagues of mine, like we, we'd have a bit of a slag about engineering. And I told him one time <laughs> that the way we used to do the, we, we, we had this created scenario, myself and a particular friend of mine, a colleague, and we'd give him, remember the marks in the old days where you have the uh, yeah. the, the gymnastics, yeah, yeah, yeah. of artistic impression and technical merit. And we'd be holding up these imaginary, <laughs> 5.6. Yeah. Full six was a very good one. That oh, we, we used to be jealous of the South, the South Siders because back in the day, if you committed a crime on the South Side, you went to McGrock and on the North Side, you went to Connell yeah. And they're very contrasting people. There, there's a completely different... Yeah. But every judge, yeah. they are actually, I'm sure, of course, they were. Yeah. But Inchon was like... You is Conor Leary still there? Is Con, he Con is retired. Is he? He's retired about uh, four or five years. Four Do you know what? Maybe. I'll just say this. If anyone's listening to this and they're young, you're lucky that Conor Leary's not around <laughs> these days. No, saying that, he was like, uh, he was very stern in his approach. Yeah, but I never seen him like lash a fell out of it for no reason either, do you know? Yeah. They were just, like, he was fair in his own way. Yeah. But the, the thing with him, like, is, like, you knew there was, you know, with McGrock, you went in and you, McGrock would probably mortify you and then go lenient on you if he felt that there's still a little bit of hope. But I think when Conor Leary, after a while, he recognises the same faces uh, coming in and out, yeah. then it's just, you're going through the motions. And when you see the packed courtroom as well and the list of people, they're like, like, sometimes, and this is a question for you, I suppose, sometimes as a defendant, if you can call him yourself, myself a defendant yeah. sometimes you go in right and in the district court you're very uh, removed from the process in terms of you have to stand there yeah. but the guard says what he thinks happened or the inspector yes. then the judge basically like it's your word against his isn't it and as a solicitor like how difficult is it to actually well, yeah first of all you've got to figure out whether the person or the client in my case is pleading guilty or not guilty mm. In the old days, by the way, you'd have to do it on the blind because you wouldn't even be given the evidence which would allow you to assess what might be coming down the tracks, which is why you develop better skills of listening and analysing what your client has to say to you at that stage. Some developments in the law occurred maybe about 20 years ago. You'll get a copy of statements. And this d disclosure, as you say. And from the time onwards when you got disclosure and you were able to see it for what it was, you could tell the client the reasons why, and you still do, that the thing mightn't look so good in terms of a not guilty. But like the essential question in all of these, like a charge is an accusation. Mm. The accusation is brought by the DPP. The detail is in the charge. And it's a simple question in all crime. When you're brought before the court, the decisions are guilty or not guilty. There's no middle ground. Yeah. Sometimes you might have a batch of charges and there might be a possible compromise to some degree. But we don't have plea bargaining like they have in the States. Yeah. So the first issue is, what are we doing about the case? What's the decision? After that, if it's a not guilty case, then next question will be, are you going to call your client to give evidence? Is there a case that he has to answer or she? Or is it a case where you can just challenge the evidence presented by the DPP and see if you can get what they call a direction 
In other words, a finding of not guilty by the judge because of lack of evidence that's assessed by the court. On the other hand, if it's a guilty plea, then, you know, what you're there for is to kind of get the best result that you can for the client. But again, that involves listening to the client, getting the details, you know, background, background stuff, you know, all the important things that you'd expect, family, addiction. Your addiction, previous record, if you have a record, why, what are you doing about it? And, you know, the court's in a kind of a structured, even though it looks kind of haphazard as it's going along, there is a structure to the thing. I, I often call it like, and maybe it's a bit strong, but it's like when you pile into the district court every day and you got, you know, 120, 30, 40 cases, you know, 150. At the start, it's, it could be regarded as organized chaos. Mm. But you get to the end of the day, everything is done to a standard. It's pretty, well, satisfactory. People might not be too thrilled with an outcome. Mm. But as long as, like, to, for me, the most important thing about a relationship with a client is trust. Yeah. That they place all their trust in you. We might argue, like I, I was arguing with a client today. I was, at, I was doing a consultation on a Zoom up in the prison. And, the, you know, the, old, the consultation was kind of heading down towards whose side are you on? Uh-huh. And I'm going, well, you know, I'm on your side, but maybe you don't like the message I'm imparting. Uh-huh. The message is based on the evidence. So I'm there saying, you know, I, I'm an advisor as well as a somebody who articulates stuff for you in court. Yeah, yeah. My advice is the prediction of a likely outcome. You know, I'm not asking you whether you're guilty or not guilty. Mm. I'm telling you what the evidence looks like and how will a jury determine what the evidence looks like so you figure out what you want to do after that. Like nobody goes into a room with a jury and sits there. What you do is, you know, or a judge making up their mind in the district court because there's no juries there. Really what you're doing, guys, you're assessing a future event in a jury case, 12 people making a decision based upon evidence. In a district judge sitting alone case, a judge listening to the evidence. And you figure out, does it get the prosecutor across the line? Or is there a doubt that you would be found guilty? If there's a doubt and it's reasonable, then you know you're entitled to the benefit of the doubt, hopefully. But if there's no doubt or if there's, if there's a doubt that's only nonsense, um, you know, yeah. some people have got to call it like it is. You've been, you've been involved in some very, very high-profile cases down through the years, Frank. That's and true. We, we know a few. Um, there's been the case with Robert Hoolin. Correct. Okay, the young lad that died in Middleton. Yeah, uh, Wayne, I don't know. There's, yeah, and there's, uh, uh, Wayne was the accused. There was that, Ian Bailey. Yeah, that, but he was yes. never accused of any crime, but yeah. I, I've been acting for yeah. him. Yeah, yeah. yeah he, and the Flannerys. Yeah, I did the Flan- Frederick Flannery's case. Yeah, have you been ever? Do you know? Have you ever gotten shit from the public? Yes, for, I have. For for being a solicitor for somebody, I have constantly. Yeah. Just look me up. Yeah. Do you get I have it. Do you get and I've got shit. calls and I've got so stuff. I, my question is really: is is uh, you know you're working with these people? Yes. You know, what way do you look at them when you're going to work with them? Does it matter whether they're they're guilty or they're not guilty, or do you just go bring it? Make sure you bring it to court. And, and leave the judge and the juries? Well, first of all, you cannot become judgmental. Like, if I become judgmental, I'm in the wrong job. Mm. I mean, you, you have to be entirely dispassionate. Yeah. Like, you, 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 you know, you never know the circumstances in which you might meet somebody. Okay. You get random calls in the middle of the night, come down to the station, there's some awful crime. You go down and you, you try to be objective. In the very, very sort of high-profile, you know, cases... 
the, the only additional ingredient, I suppose, from the point of view of representation is that you have to be kind of aware of immediate and public perception. Therefore, you might have to tell the client something about what they might anticipate in a media scenario. Yeah. But like other than that, well, of course, I suppose it's also fair to say that in those much higher level sort of cases and mm-hmm. in place to murders and stuff, you know, rapes and very serious matters, that, and certainly more recently, the level of detail and sort of investigative activity that goes into the police side is enormous. But like, you know, all clients deserve. I mean, I always say to somebody who rings up, people have the idea, for example, that because I've done some big cases that I might not be accessible yeah. for ordinary, yeah, simple yeah. cases or, you know, not. But uh, to be fair, like, everybody's case is their biggest deal. Yeah. And I don't care how many people have convictions and so on and so forth. Every case is a standalone matter for every client, whether it's a minor theft, you know, whether it's... I mean, and, and in many, many cases, let's... You know, people being accused who might have been in court before mm-hmm. and who might have a story to tell, they're they're shattered to be stuck in the criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. So every client deserves a listening, deserves, you know, an engagement, an understanding, you know, yeah. figuring out... Because yeah, even the small theft case for somebody, that could have a huge determinants on their family. Absolutely. And yeah. they could be under fairness pressure. And it might be as big for them as the fella looking at 10 years for armed robbery or drugs. Sometimes more so because maybe some of the guys have been through the system before and people who have not been in the system before get involved, get into random, unanticipated, boy, a lot of that stuff goes on. Sexual assaults for young fellas, rapes for young fellas whose families are all solid people. And next thing, you know, so-and-so meets another lady and in some circumstances... Next thing, there's a complaint. Next thing, there's an arrest. It just devastates people. Yeah. And so you gotta, you got to be very conscious of, you know, not just that evidential kind of stuff, yeah. but just the whole impact. There's suicide concerns amongst people. One of the first things that I do in a lot of cases, and I know it by looking at people, the first question I might say is, you know, what are you here for? What's the story? I get it. Next story, I look at them and I'm saying, I'm bringing out suicide. Yeah. And the prevalence of the desire to commit it or the concept that they might commit suicide. Males, particularly, certain age, particularly, it is the one that I bring up, I'd say, second to trying to get some detail of what's going on. And you can see it. And you can also see um, the level of surprise that is brought up some cases the relief that is brought up some sometimes they might come out with a family member bring up the topic the to- the family might or the mother or the father or whoever might be kind of conscious of something going on in the mind of some person but it just doesn't come out until you challenge it yeah I, and I, I wouldn't go home at night if I hadn't done it yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. I just wouldn't do you, see, do you see the numbers of sexual violence cases in, within your office and some of your colleagues I've, massively rising in the last few years? It's gone through the roof. What do you think is contributing to that? More reporting? There's a, a, a sea change in the whole area of sexual complaint, sexual crime investigation, historical crime investigation. I mean, the police resources that are going to it now are extraordinary. And may, may I say also probably taking up an enormous amount of time in terms of policing yeah. current matters, but that would be a matter for the guards to talk to you about. The reason for it is, uh, first of all, absolutely the greater number of complaints that are being made. 
Secondly, the greater level of credibility that there is attached to complaints. And then thirdly, you know, in the DPP's office, sometimes unfairly, may I say, in my view, the level of willingness to prosecute. And in those cases, like, you know, the number of people who are charged, having increased exponentially, by the way, for those people who are not guilty, the two, three years of trauma from the time of the arrest until the time of trial and maybe acquittal, because the stigma will follow you even long after. It's good to tell you. Yeah. It's beyond stigma. Can you give me an example there sensitively um, of when you said there, in your opinion, the DPP shouldn't have pursued it? Can you give us an example of a case where that was probably the DPP had no right in pursuing that? Or just a case study, but anonymously? Or can you do that? Yeah, I can. You know, I mean, I had one in the last, say, 12 months, uh, a young man who had been, let's say, questioned probably four, four and a half years ago about an event where he protested his innocence and probably rightly so, uh, had to wait for quite some time for the decision to come through to prosecute. Uh, And then he was charged with rape, placed on bail. Then because of COVID and other delays, the trial took a long time to come through. So he was subject to bail constraint. And during that period, he was then tried and there was a disagreement but, uh, you know, before the jury. I thought a very solid disagreement. In fact, I thought he should have been acquitted. The view of the complainant is always canvassed these days about the possibility of a retrial. A retrial was proposed, retrial happened, another year of his life. We're now down to four, four and a half years in his life and his family were just traumatized. And then the trial occurring, the retrial, going through that knife-edged experience again, and then an acquittal, the whole time period between complaint, all the events, probably about, give or take, is it five years? It's like, mm. and he was found not guilty. You could live with maybe one trial, going at it again, two trials, very difficult. Mm. But it's all about consent. It's all about, these days, the great majority of rape cases that are going to the courts are not to do with anybody jumping out of the bushes and attacking somebody in the yeah. classic sense that we'd understand it. The great majority of rape cases are where there is some kind of engagement at a consensual level or a meeting or some random occurrence in a non-threatening, you know, normally reasonably sort of connected fashion, followed on by a sexual event. And then what you have is the interpretation of that event in the mind of the female, either then or later, as against the interpretation of the male, either then or later. And consent then being a state of mind or a state of understanding, being assessed by a jury with sometimes no other corroborating evidence, you know, you know, evidence about, because like by their nature, these things happen in private. So you get a lot of sort of he said, she said sort of stuff in these consent arguments. Alcohol and drugs play a role. So memory can be... So you could have a case where the complainant and the defendant, they could be both telling the truth, but they're given their perspective Correct. on what happened. 100%. But they have two different perspectives Correct. on what happened, and it's, it's not straightforward. It's not. And so the jury is, is really being asked to engage in almost a mind-reading psychology exercise of, first of all, maybe what happened, 
Second of all, the state of mind of the complainant. Third of all, the state of mind of the accused. And then their respective states of mind vis-a-vis each other, but particularly the state of mind of the accused person as to his understanding of what was actually going on and to what extent extent was fully forthcoming and or yeah, consent was forthcoming. It's a it's a complete minefield. Uh, I'm not. I I I I I am not uh, saying that of course sexual you know activity sexual crime should be investigated. Of course it should. It should be prosecuted where appropriate. But some of the decisions these days are very knife edged and uh, very finely balanced. Mm. And I do I do sometimes you know say. Looking at a kid, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. kid about night drinking, mm. you know, the stuff goes on. The arrest, the prosecution, God help us all. It's just it's deadly dangerous. But, you know, another thing there I'd say you must get a lot of at the moment, particularly now because there's a new law that's coming in with revenge porn. Yeah, where there is. There's photographs being taken by either a female or a male. Yes. And they're being threatened on maybe social media or whatever. Is that becoming a big deal at the moment? And can you see that actually taking off massively? Because it's against the law at the moment. Yeah, 1922. Or yeah. sorry, yeah, 2022. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's yes. against and I, the law just to have the images. You don't have to be the one taking them. It's against the law to distribute them. Sorry, to have them in your possession without consent and certainly to distribute them onwards or threaten to do so. So if, if, I, if I sent you something, if Timmy sent me yeah. something, yeah. I sent it to you yeah. and we all have it on our phones, yes. we're all... At risk of being prosecuted. Uh, okay, as between the uh, creator and the receiver, if there's consent, that's fine. But if they're if they're threatened to be released to third parties without the consent of the person mm. whose image is there, that's the criminal stuff. Mm. Uh, and people do send pictures, <laughs> yeah, yeah, know. willingly and yeah. so on. But then a relationship breaks down. Some other event happens. It's the threat to distribute onwards, or uh, the threat to um, retain and use for in in, in inappropriate circumstances. Mm. Yeah, think, it's, it's think, up to up to recent year. I've had contact you, about matters of that kind. Yeah. Do you think both male and female, as they understand um, the damage that you're causing to another human being when you release such images? Like, yes, I do actually. It, it's it's the mental health side of it. Now I have a kids. I have kids. I have a daughter. Sure. She's sixteen. Sure. And I watched a film a few, last year. Actually, it was about this young girl in um, America, mm-hmm. and she sent a picture of her for boobs to yes. a, a, a man in some jock, if that's what they're called, these football players, and he started sending it to all his friends and everything. And she went completely into herself. People yeah. were laughing at a joke, and she took an overdose. And she were, she was in hospital, and I think she was brain damaged. But that kind of stuff is happening everywhere at the moment because of the likes of revenge part. So even things. I, I think people that, that is the reality yeah. of it. People do, and we don't understand as as a society that this stuff really genuinely hurts people. Like I have people in my phone book and they send me shit and WhatsApp. I when I know who sent the messages, I actually don't even open the messages. I just leave them on my phone. I, I actually think that we do, and I think that people who receive message, images and all that stuff, I actually firmly believe that they absolutely do or must know that the distribution of that material is hugely likely to be impactful yeah. because 
there's no way you could not know that. Mm. Any right thinking, uh, you know, any 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 individual, I have to say, that's with a P for a brain, yeah. has got to know. So you literally have no, you've no defence if you're no if defense. you're doing it. Not but they leave aside the fact there's no defence because they can trace those things electronically and yeah. they can access the phones and get what they can do technologically these days is nobody's business. But the point about it is it's a nasty crime. Yeah. And it's an insidious, insipid type crime. Yeah. And we we anonymize the victims because they're out in a picture as opposed to being right there in front of us. Mm. So it's almost like a dehumanization of the of the victim. Yeah. But I think that like it's like, you know, pornography, you know, child pornography yeah. and the, the, the victims being some country out there foreign and there's just images on it. It's not. We have to know what's being done yeah. to create those images it, or we have to yeah. know the effect on somebody of you pick, publishing or distributing an image of somebody who you know. This is just another know. example of the change in face of crime as well. crime is, you, know? you couldn't keep up to it. I yeah. mean, it's, we were on earlier like about like yeah. the old days. I know. Above. Speaking of the old days, Barry Galvin would have been around. He is still around. Yeah, uh, in the district court when you were there. Was, yeah. So um, I spoke to him before. Okay. Uh, we were going to try to get him on the podcast, but very sensitive where Barry's concerned, sure. so it didn't happen. Uh, but that's fine. But he was a criminal defence solicitor like yourself. Originally and, he was. And he had a turning point. Do you know what his turning point was? Uh, I'll tell you, right? I don't. And I'll ask you a question then. He was defending these two brothers that robbed these it's other... It's in the book, yeah. It's in the book, yeah. It's in the, it's in the book. He wrote about his turning point. Well, he had a piece in this book, and so did he for Hamilton High School in Bandon. But uh, he was a criminal defence solicitor. He got these two brothers off with a case. They robbed £20,000 in cash from a person that owned the garage out Boyd's Cross direction. And when he was going back in the train, it was in Dublin, the case in the High Court... When he was coming back in the old train carriages, there was a bar you know, with, with the, the cafeteria. Yeah, I remember it. He said, and they were all up there drinking the brothers, their families, you know, and he went down into the next carriage. You could see the people that were robbed, broken. And he said at that stage, he knew why, he felt like why he was doing that. He's helping these criminals get off. Did you, did, did, did it ever cross your mind where you're after getting somebody off with a case and you're thinking like, am I just after helping them get off when I... Did you ever have a similar yeah, I, I, train of thought? Yeah. In another context, yeah, what I would say is that I, I've always tried... I mean, I still have to do my job because people have an entitlement to a defence. That's a tough question. Yeah, yeah. And it's not. You know, I, I disdain the idea that people would be celebratory in that context after they have been found not guilty, but that's the system. I've always, and certainly in cases where there has been a serious impact or any level of impact on a victim and then they're in court and they see something unfolding... For me, I always try to be conscious when I'm speaking on behalf of my client or when I'm representing the client to the court, I always, and I don't care what, you know, I, I speak whatever words I speak on behalf of the client, I'm always acutely conscious of the victims listening to me, being in court, and I'm saying some things on behalf of somebody, and I'm conscious of what has happened to the case and perhaps their sense of you know concern distress upset that there has been a particular outcome mm -hmm. and i i sure i'm not going to say anything to add to any level of their distress um but at, at the end of it i mean i and i have seen i've seen reactions on the part of clients to outcomes 
where I have looked at it and said, I don't like what I'm looking at. Yeah. I don't participate in it. I am not personally involved. I am an, an, a representative. I'm not associated with any reactions or anything like that. If I see a reaction and I sort of can exercise any control, I tell people, you're doing the wrong thing. It's a court or it's just finishing, the court's over. It's not like it is not a celebratory event. No. No, sometimes you can understand the sense of relief, exuberance, etc. Yeah. Where people who are innocent, yeah. because there's also guy, guys, there's a difference between innocence and being not guilty. Innocence, yeah. Innocence is a true state of having done absolutely nothing wrong, having been accused, and the verdict is that you're not guilty because the evidence hasn't achieved a standard. But some people go into court, not many, mind you, thanks be to God. Yeah. Because the hardest cases to defend are cases where people are innocent. Yeah. Not not guilty. Mm. Innocent. Mm. Fortunately, innocence and prosecutions don't occur too often. Mm. But can you imagine the feeling? And I've had it in one or two cases. For Ian somebody, Bailey. Well, he was never prosecuted for murder. But, but in your, like... Yeah, he's innocent. Innocent I mean, he's done nothing wrong. Too. I mean, like, what's done to him? Is at a different level entirely. Yeah. Societally, media-wise, yeah. French Republic, the Irish state, mother of God. But just somebody who's prosecuted, who's innocent, and who was then found guilty and required to serve time in jail and loses that all... That must be very rare in Ireland. It is. You don't really right, hear about it, you don't. Do you you know? don't. You, but, but it does happen. It's... I've had one or two in my time and I've said in my belief though they have been found guilty by the system I have left the court going oh cripes yeah, yeah. it's like it's not good yeah. so but thanks be to goodness it is rare in the extreme but it, yeah. it, ain't, it ain't beyond the bounds yeah. so like innocence not guilty they're different concepts not guilty is just not hitting the standard on the state side so the case isn't made out, you're fine, you're not guilty. The other ones are, <laughs> they're a different kettle of fish. Yeah, yeah. Do you know, do you know some of the, the, the high-profile cases you have been involved in? Yeah. Um, there's a lot of different stories going around, around the Robert Holding case. Yes. Ian Bailey case. Um, can you give us a small bit of an insight into maybe Robert's case at the beginning? Give, just, yeah. just give people an understanding yeah. what really and truly happened. And that, yeah. Yeah, well, it's, again, I'd be very conscious of who'd be listening to this. Yeah. But certainly, because of the way the thing took a turn at the end of the case, and because of, you know, I don't know if you remember the detail, but there was a victim impact statement made. Will you just bring us up to speed for people that might be too familiar I mean, with it? What happened in that case was that in 2005, a young boy, Robert Hooland, was... Uh, an immediate next-door neighbour of my client, Wayne O'Donoghue. They were very, very close friends. Robert had a particular condition, ADHD. He was a grandkid. Wayne was a 20-year-old student and what was then CIT. Robert came down to the house to ask Wayne to give him a lift into town because he wanted to go to McDonald's or something along those lines. Wayne said that he couldn't because he had to do something for his girlfriend, Rebecca, what a leaving cert plan that they had for study. And Robert started to insist that Wayne would bring him in. Robert started to throw some stones at Wayne's car. Wayne got a bit... Uh, cr- 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I was upset because Robert was doing that. Wayne grabbed Robert, took a hold of him by the neck, and fatally wounded him there and then. Poor old Robert, the young lad, died either immediately at his feet or certainly at the time that he tried to bring him into the bathroom to revive him in a state of absolutely abject panic and mental chaos. This is his little friend. He didn't know what to do. The other psychologically relevant thing that really didn't much emerge as to why he didn't come forward and admit it is that Wayne's mother was about to come home So he didn't want her to come home to see a dead boy in the house. So he went into panic and freeze frame mode or brain freeze mode. And to try to figure out what he should do, he put uh, Robert's body into the back of his car, drove around the area, trying to figure out what he should do. And then to make a very long and complex story short, his effort to placed the body where it might be located on a beach nearby, failed because there were people down there. He had to get home. He put the body, awfully sad, into a ditch near a place near the beach and then went home. And his brain was in some kind of strange location. Then there was a public cry and where's the kid? It was huge news at the time. It was international. It was all in every uh, Sky News. And there was, it was like press Hollywell's Jessica Chapman type coverage. Like, do you remember that? Name? Massively. I remember my two kids, my four kids in school at the time. So the whole country was in a state of panic about possible predatorial people out there. And geez, I remember going to school with my kids and we were all, they were only young kids at the time. Anyway, the long and the short of it is that um, uh, the, the body was located uh, I think about eight or nine days after the event, and that was you know, awful, sad, awful for the family. And then the body was, the little boy was buried, and the day after he was buried, Wayne O'Donoghue told his father what he had done at home. 
His father locked him into the, because he was in a state of suicide, he locked him into the garage at home, actually, when, when Wayne told him on the Sunday morning. He called the guards. Guards came up. I'll never forget it to my dying day. They called me to, because some local solicitor, a very good a colleague, said, look, you know, there's, there's some stuff. That's, that's the case. I remember going down there. I mean, the town was hushed because the burial had occurred the day before. Middleton. Yeah, Middleton, yeah. yeah. The place was like, but the whole country was conscious of this case. Mm. Anyway, I went into the house and I met this young kid, Wayne O'Donoghue. I remember spending eight hours in the kitchen with Wayne, having got the kind of the detail of what had happened. Eight hours, maybe nine hours, actually. He wasn't arrested. He gave a nine-hour, give or take, voluntary statement to the police about what had happened. Interestingly, every single detail of that checked out when they did their massive inquiry afterwards. But I remember being in the kitchen and looking out at the Hulan house, which was just over the fence. They didn't know what was going on down below. There was only two police officers there taking the statement in a very discreet way. And then, you know, I left her about midnight or one o'clock on sort of the Monday morning. And then Wayne was arrested and taken down to the police station. And, you know, he was charged with manslaughter. But then a very key thing happened about alleged DNA evidence being found on the remains of uh, Robert, which elevated it, I have to say, wrongly, to a murder charge because there was now some perceived motivation. There talks of semen yeah. being found on the body. Yeah, and of course that was not evidential because what I did as a part of my defence work then was to rule it out, and I engaged pretty top-class experts in the UK to analyse stuff and to, 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 to demonstrate to the DPP, by the way, that what they were proposing as being a link was unsustainable. They actually agreed to withdraw that element of the thing. It was never included in the trial, and rightly so. But public... The public opinion. perception was that something was going but, on, you But, see. you know, as a, as, a, as a lawyer, like, even if something is put out there as evidence that's later taken yeah. back, is the damage already done in terms of the jury well, I, You know, of all the cases I've done, actually... That's the one case where I, I dealt with media sort of matters in a way that um, made sure that it was never something that actually formally emerged, okay? Yeah. I never made a bail application for him, where if, that, if I had made a bail application, all that would have come out, and everything about that was to ensure that a jury would not be contaminated with stuff that they might read mm. 12 months before the trial. Everything I did in that case... Literally, from the time I met him, time we were going to court in Middleton, all the court appearances in Middleton, all the appearances subsequently in the court, all the background work to do with two elements of the case, by the way, were very important. Number one, ruling out the DNA, which we did. And the other key evidence in that case was the challenge to the um, evidence of um, strangulation and the duration of it. The state pathologist, Dr. Marie Cassidy, had done a, a kind of research and a, and a time estimate of how long the choking event might have occurred. We fundamentally challenged that, so I had a very, very top class. He was a Northern Ireland state pathologist, actually, Professor Jack Crane. And again, we had to do all that sort of stuff, you know, to get that evidence. No, in fairness, Professor Cassidy, she gave her evidence. We challenged it. But the other stuff was completely ruled out. Yeah. But the media interest in that case was just like off the scale and um, the trial became confined to 
the detail of what was essentially, ultimately, an unintentional event between Wayne and Robert in the car. The regrettable thing is that a lot of the stuff that you can talk about many years later, about how things happened and why they happened and so on, it became impossible to articulate at the time when that could have been done because there was a, an event that happened in the sentencing hearing where a victim impact statement was read out, which introduced those things into the public domain in court for the first time. And because there was this absolute uproar in the court and media frenzy when that happened, the opportunity to say things was lost. Wayne went into jail. He got a sentence of four years. He served three to the day. He did not take temporary release. He wouldn't take it. Again, it was felt that if he had, there would have been more, you know, attention. The DPP appealed against the leniency of the sentence. The sentence was rightly upheld by the Court of Appeal. And then when he got out, there was more crazy stuff about how could he only do three years. But on the other hand, then there was huge public sympathy for him by people who had a grasp of the fact that this could be any kid. That case, of all the cases I've ever done, lads, Mm. that was a, this could be any kid. In terms of the event, yeah, do you know if it was someone, if 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 it was me who done it from yeah. the north side of the city, do you think I would have got the same pity when I don't know who got? Do you think class That's fails a very good question to Yeah, uh, it is you. actually. Do you think I would have got really the same pity? Question. Well, I, I just I, ask because my family wouldn't have had. The, I don't know what what I came down to at the end of the day was a financial. No, it was not. I, it certainly was because, because I know I know I well, we wouldn't have never had the money like to be able to afford all these different things, and I I, I do wonder whether I would have got the same, the same. I, I'd like to say that I would have hoped yes, you know? but I must say I, yes is the answer. You, you, I would have hoped that you should get a. I think I authored. I I believe it was a legally aided case, by the way. And, the, and this is uh, Papa do you know how this is a no, Papa no, 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 no. the justice, the justice system. system in general like absolutely but I believe I mean I can remember doing you know what I mean? other cases where yeah. they were pretty up there and getting outcomes that you know would be well, you remember you mentioned one of the cases that I was in earlier on yeah. uh, you know where there was missing bodies and all sorts of crazy stuff and none and people probably would have heard the rest of the story. They probably wouldn't because it's so old. Uh, but I can't. guarantee it was pretty hot at the time, 1994, 95. The trial was in 96. We're talking about Fred Flannery, yes. And I did that one. And we was that your first big media? Uh, in criminal matters, I'd say first or second. I did other ones, but other civil type of stuff. But in that case, we, uh, well, whether it was me or other bar- barristers as well, we did so much work in that case that the case collapsed on day 13 of the trial when the judge determined that there was such a level of police misbehaviour, shall we say, yeah. that the judge stopped the trial. Oh, yeah. He put a permanent stay on the indictment. I remember it very yeah. well. Freddie, now deceased, yeah. walked out the door of the court after that length of a trial with the judge having determined following inquiry during the course of the trial that the level of misconduct, the level of non-disclosure of evidence the level of um, other kinds of activity. Was there many? Was this, this is about uh, dead people, murderers as well. He was it? accused of killing one person, but yeah. there were at the time three other people besides the deceased Mr. O'Driscoll. There were four people who had gone missing from the same house yeah. in or about the same time who have never been accounted for. And never mm-hmm. been found. Never. It's an extraordinary case. Like, I mean, 
you know, at the time, I don't know if you remember it in Cork. Yeah, I remember. Back at that yeah, time, that was you were, you were young. Jack, I wasn't yeah. a young fellow. I was doing the case. Yeah. At that time, I can remember, for example, reading the Book of Evidence that was presented in that case. First time I ever felt it. Actually, was at all reading it. Night we got it from the trial or from you know, the preliminary stuff, and I was actually like afraid that in our town, that it could be perceived that there was possibly a serial killer going yeah. around. It was spooky. Yeah, a big deal, yeah. No, you were asking me the question. I did that case. Uh, I would like to say, by the way, like defending murder cases, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, like it's the highest level of criminal yeah. level of defence. Like, I mean, I've defended. I'm probably doing six or seven or eight at the moment, like, but unfortunately. But the, 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 they're extraordinary cases. They're... The, the level of kind of detail, the level of impact. The, the stakes emotion. are so high. The stakes are high. They're, 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 they're the highest stakes you get in criminal cases, in, crimin in the criminal defence world. The point I'm making is that um, you shouldn't be you know, doing the job if you're not going to pay proper attention and give a proper service to somebody who's accused of a murder. And in fairness, a lot of people may be guilty of unlawful killing. A lot of murder defences are all about the issue of intent. Premeditation. Premeditation and what do you intend to happen and all these interesting legal concepts about people intending to, you know, wish to have the result of the, what they call the natural and probable consequences of their acts. Um. There's a lot of um, mental stuff about murder defences. So a long-winded answer for you, Timmy, you should have got the same level of service. I believe you would by any properly conducted solicitor. The level of analysis and so on should be at the highest. You know, you know the way you said there well ago that like um, when when the, the, this um, lad told his father that he, what he he done um, and the guards came to the house. Is that normal procedure to the guards come to the house and and stay there for eight hours to question somebody? I'd say, to be honest with you, and I, I'm just trying to look back in time, they were so, um, they were so, Probably trying it was such a unique case, it was such a unique case, they figured um, that the best way to police it or investigate it would be to try to do it in as humane a way as possible. So they figured, that it took, like they were quite properly conducted at that time, whatever, about other times, they figured out he's got to get a lawyer, he's got to get advice, we're not going to go near the guy until he's comfortable, you know, because remember, he could go down to the police station, he's got a right to remain silent and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I think it was properly handled. Mm. And, the, and may I say, the outcome of the eight or nine hour interview was, ultimately, that everything he said was correct. After stunning analysis of what he said subsequently like stuff that I'd never seen before in my life it was the first case that I saw some elements of investigative evidential product like stuff that would actually make you admire and compliment the police for the expertise they brought into the case mm. I might have criticised them for the other material that was eventually excluded but it was just an amazing Was case. Was there a consensus way. between the defence and the police in the end that this was an accident? No. The police referred the file to the DPP. 
the DPP ultimately raised the charge from manslaughter to murder. Yeah. Uh, he offered a plea to manslaughter at the outset, even though if he hadn't engaged in the act of concealment, of which he was certainly, you know, yeah, likely, yeah. you know, if he had, I've always said, lads, it's very sad, if anybody hears this, and I don't mean to offend anybody, but if he had not panicked and frozen and done the things that he did, or if he had done things properly and correctly and called in the services, the emergency, and just described it for what it was, the whole event might have been regarded as actually accidental or unintentional. But of course he didn't, and yeah. you know he, he had to live with the consequences of that failure to react properly. Do you ever get, get presented with a case, like in the case of there's a child after being killed, there's a serial killer or whatever? Do you ever think, do you ever look at a case and say, fuck that? Or, <laughs> or would you take anything on? Or did know, you ever decline the case? I or? I do, I know. <laughs> I have refused. Have you? I have, yeah. If you, if you think that they're guilty? No, just refused. I've refused. Beyond your moral boundaries, like. Or certain kinds of people with whom I would have... Or, or, sorry, about whom I'd have a particular view yeah. uh, without going into detail. I have declined to take instructions in mm-hmm. you know, one or two cases that I just have felt. I also have to have some kind of a life. Yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I do this a lot. Because would things get personal on you if you're defending somebody that public opinion might be terrible against them and you're the face of it then and the six o'clock news and you're like an apologist for a child killer or a serial killer like and you have to go to the shop then you have to go about your daily business or bring your kids to school or whatever is it get tricky for you it can but i try to you know get on with it but i I, i've always said lads by the way and uh, yeah the great what i call the silent majority of people you know the people who don't go around roaring and shouting and yeah keyboard warriors these days and all that there is a silent large majority of people who know that we have a system of democratic you know uh, criminal justice Mm. and that if we don't have that system we don't have a democracy people have a great appreciation for example that random events can occur in the lives of people where they need help because the state is a very powerful you know animal and that if you don't have representation no matter how abhorrent something might be so I always have said that there is that level of understanding you know and um, acceptance of what you do but sometimes I suppose people get a little bit you know yeah, they cross the bone cross the lane like but look I, I, I don't uh, it hasn't it hasn't um, it has caused me yeah you know, to, not to do the job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know these days? Uh, yeah, do you know uh, in the last few years we've seen a massive, massive increase in people using crack cocaine and streets yeah. and stuff. Have you seen um, large numbers of violent crimes coming in front of you because of crack cocaine in the office? Like, I have seen a, an explosion in the number of drug cases. I've seen an explosion in the amount of crime because of cocaine, heroin. I mean, it's just exponentially crazy. I've seen a large amount of change in the mental state of clients from the demands that they make for the outcomes that they're trying to achieve in court because the craving is so great that they can't even comprehend that there might be a custody outcome, that a case has got to go on on a given day. So I, I just have seen a sea change in you know, what's going on 
in the criminal justice system as a result of the incredible explosion of drug use in the most societally destructive way. Mm. And it's just, it's, it's now almost at a point where it's overwhelming, actually. It is overwhelming to the police. It's overwhelming to our communities. The prison system is prison flooded system. with people that don't show sentences and they are no way over capacity. Issue. Look, guys, it's just uh, we're we're in we're in a situation where we're we're just about hanging in there. What do you think about a decriminalisation approach? Would that be logical for you? For 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 any given drug or just one drug? for for any given drug under like they have in Portugal, any given drug if it's for personal use and it's addiction related, because as Gabor Mate told us on the podcast, the whole definition of addiction is continuing to use the drugs in spite of you know consequences. consequences. So if if, if I'm a and I've, I've been in the situation if I'm strung over my head on the air and I get arrested with, with a tin file in my pocket I get arrested for theft you're not going to say right I better stop this now because no, I don't no. want to go to court court is just an occupational hazard when you're in that lifestyle ok to, to answer your question I would not necessarily support decriminalisation as such although years ago I used to have this view that cannabis was such a low level drug that really shouldn't have been criminal however the cannabis that's coming in into our country at the moment or the cannabis that's being utilised is itself sometimes so dangerous and more, way more than people realise causing psychological you know, consequences schizophrenia psychosis crazy stuff so the answer is not t- t- to that extent but I do believe that we should create um, facilities so that prison isn't the exercise or the outcome so that we should have treatment regimes and treatment modalities as an alternative to prison, that's the first thing I'd say. Right. Because decriminalization is open to so many variations and ideas of who's an addict or what strength the drug has or so on. There's a huge amount of variables. So that's the first thing. Second thing is I, should, uh, um, I would support the idea that if people have convictions for minor drug offences, possession, etc., that we should have a more advanced decriminalization outcome so that if somebody has a record they shouldn't have to suffer the continuation of that record for too many years Mm. that's a real consequence the record itself Mm. is more of a consequence for guys who have the the record but who can't shake it off we have this piece of legislation in ireland called spent convictions spent convictions act but for minor offenses young plus 18 19 20 the period of time that, is, that a conviction remains against you, as it were, is seven years. So that's nonsense. It really should be brought down. But if you have multiple convictions, Frank, it's not really relevant for you. I'm proposing solutions to people's longer-term problems who have convictions. The two are jail, no, rehabilitation and structures like that, yes. They're far more cost-effective, by the way, societally. Absolutely, no question. The second one is... If there's a residual ongoing consequence because you have a record and you can't get employment or you can't do certain things, travel, etc., I would support, and I would have often said, a period of time of seven years is too long. There should be a much shorter period. And if you can establish well-structured criteria mm-hmm. to achieve a clearing of the decks, mm-hmm. I'd support that. Why don't you lock and fill us up for two and three months Frank. I don't. I mean, look. It's. It's. Like, what's uh, look, the meaning of that? The bottom line is, it, it. It doesn't achieve anything. But you know, judges. Lads, I'm. I'm telling you now. This is not 
this is not not us no 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 the opposite no. Right, no, all no, no, all no, no we're just asking your opinion okay yeah. right. no problem like, do you think locking somebody up for two or three months and packing our jails out of it is the right way to sometimes eat? I'll tell you lads sometimes it's the only thing that can be done to break some cycle for somebody because okay. they're so bad and a lot of a lot of those like rest boys. Yeah, I think it kept me alive a few yeah, times. Yeah, yeah. A lot of guys, lads, and when guys go into jail, into into court, and you're looking at them, and like, I know, and I've I've lost so many clients in the last yeah. two years, three years for dead, got overdoses, accidental overdoses, intentional. Judges, mm. you, you, you think they don't look down and go, jeez, like, this guy just needs to just take seven days, yeah. remand for seven days, give him a breather. I'm sure Conor Larry a few times looked at me and he's like. This man needs to go into custody. Yeah. He's, he's not going to survive the next yeah. few months out yeah. in the street, Absolutely. you know. So, like, you know, from that point of view, judges like, we might have a note, you know, yeah. whatever. They're actually, they walk up and down the streets like everybody mm. else. District judges who are at the court. We've place. had two judges on the podcast. American judges, yeah. You know, um, do, you know who, do, do you know Judge Olin Kelleher? I sure. I meet, him, I meet him every day. Yeah, tell him we said hi. I certainly will. But come here, he has the... I'll get him to listen. Yeah, he has the drug diversion t- thing in his court, don't he? No, we don't have that in Cork in any meaningful I, way. It's in Dublin, Dublin-based. I thought there was a, like a specific worker, like uh, through the, the drugs task force, yeah. through the drugs yeah, task you're force, right, sorry, positioned in the court. But like if you have two two convictions, or if you're on, in court for possession of drugs, personal use, yeah. the first two times you'll get this pro, this the diversion scheme when you meet this person... And they're offered the support that you're talking about there. Yeah, he, he does it in a kind of a different way. He does it for um, what he calls, rightly so, Class A drugs, where if you have a Class A drug, you know, conviction, he'll make sure that you're introduced to uh, a drug assessor, effectively, yeah. of the auspices of the probation service, who will assess your state of affairs and, will, you know. And what he does, and right, I'd go, I'd support it, is then they come into him, he gets a letter saying, yeah, they've engaged, they're clear, there's no issues going on. And they will then get, for their first offence, by the a satisfactory non-criminal conviction outcome. They have much more sorry, more refined structures in Dublin. We don't have them down here. Yeah. But like all judges, lads, in my experience, except for one or two, over 40 years, I can't be saying who, <laughs> but the vast majority of judges, and I mean, I'm in the district court every day, they, they don't want to lock people up. Like there is not a desire to lock people up. We treat that like the deprivation of somebody's liberty huh. is one serious act. So, like, I show judges are solicitors themselves. They're, yeah, they're, they'd be former lawyers. A lot of them might have done the criminal courts over the years, right or wrong in that one. Like, but the bottom line is, judges have no desire to lock people up. They have a function as they see it societally. And one of the functions is, you know, protection of society from offending conduct. But, you know, in fairness to you, Timmy, your question, is the two to three month stuff, does it do any good? In a lot of cases, probably not. In some cases, it may save lives. And it's a call. better options. Yeah, it's a call. And See, you're right. You're right. It has saved lives. It has saved. And I have seen it within my own family. Yeah. You know me, brother Tommy, you've been here sure for a long time. And like... Like I've mentioned this before, like you, once upon a time when Tommy was at his rock bottom, you know, there was a bench warrant up for him, yeah. and he was as bad now as you could get. You, you know, what oh, like, like, you know, I, right? I literally had to go into the house and yeah. drag him out of the house and bring him out to the gas station yeah. because we we were so worried about him sure. that he was going to be found dead. I thought that 
he'd go in there and he'd get a bit of fucking he regenerate his body and yeah. You know, but nah, it didn't. Like and then back out from it was like it was it was a really difficult time for us all. But the few stints probably kept him warm. Yes, it saved his life. Every time he went in, he came back all like a fresh penny. Yeah, but, but you see, we need we need more options for the judge other than we custody. We and the, the thing the is, a, a judge's hands is tied. Like, we across need, the board. Yeah, we we need the options of, um, of 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 a location to which people can be required to go. Like essentially, that's judges can't sentence you to a rehab facility, um, but judges can create a structure whereby it's an to a rehab. But like you know, like in our society. Trying to get into a rehab is harder than getting into Fort Knox. I know. They're <laughs> overrun yeah. with, you know, clientele looking to get in, yeah. having been in and going back in. Yes. I mean... And the criteria, the bar is very high then for admittance it then, is. you know, if you're in chronic addiction and you it have is. to give urine, clean urines, like... It's, it's very like difficult. It's like, get in because you got yeah. to go through the pre-admission. I'm sure I listen to the lads telling me what they got to go through to get in. Yeah. And you're sort of saying, well, like... What's the point of it if you can't even get in there? I know. But of course, from their point of view on the rehab side, they can't let in people who are so bad to have some that system. Disrupt. Right. Yeah. Would so, would you have any questions for me and James, looking at us coming from that road, you know, um, and seeing, seeing Mary, you know, James and, and myself, yeah. and what we came and on different paths? Would you have a question in relation to? Anything that we've done in our lives and the changes. Yeah, for me, the the real question. I'm sure I know about the podcast, lads, and I know about you having been found somewhere, and you mentioned how it was, and you were in the rock bottom. So my question is, how? Wh- what was it that swung it? What was the last call that said, no more of this? I to John, it was. Do you know what it was, Frank? Pain. Pain. Just pain. Do you know that stuff? Yeah. Inhale. Yeah. It's just. There's like the drugs can only work so much, and every time you use drugs, you was it wasn't doing it didn't have the same effect as it always yeah. had. Yeah, and here is like the rock bottom was a continuation of numerous rock bottoms, but this time it's like the loneliness, normally wanting yeah, normally answering the thought, having penniless yeah, you know, and, and just that. But there was a moment that right? constant thought of suicide. But yeah, but, but it was a moment for me. It was laying in. In the driver. Okay. Right. I mean, the driver. Yeah. My Mr. Graham was just after being in there, and the yeah. doctor was after being in there, just after committing a robbery in town to get yeah. no money for drugs. Yeah. And I was completely destroyed. I had the case with guarantors as well, and I was destroyed because of my own doing, and I won't get into detail mm-hmm. of it, um, covering pepper spray. And still, at that moment, the only thoughts that I had inside my mind were this. Will they ever leave this, this cell so I could get the drugs that I I planked, I cheeked, mm-hmm. right? When the drugs weren't there, then I just fell apart. I was in so much pain. Never mind the physical pain, no, that sure. had nothing to do with it. And I started just crawling around the floor, trying to pick up that paint, the white paint off the ceiling. Trying to white drops of paint on sure? the grey floor, the thinking that there were cracks of cocaine. And just something just clicked in my head and said, Timmy, your wife is a barren on front for you. You're not left near in the house. It's Christmas. It's St. Stephen's Day. You haven't even seen your kids. You're going to prison for years anyhow. Okay. And look at you. The only thing that's on your mind is, can I get more drugs? Can I get stoned again? I got up off the floor, Frank, and I cried. I cried for hours and I fell asleep. I got out the following day. 
I went home. She, she, <laughs> I came up in the taxi. I wasn't even left in the house. She paid for the taxi for me and she left me sleep in the, in the, the coach downstairs. The next day I went to the doctor mm. and I asked for help and I broke down. He put me on medication for years. Right. was that? Now? It was 12 years this, this December, yeah. Uh, but it was a tough as road because I had to deal, I had to deal with all the trauma from my childhood, all the different things I had to deal with, all sure. the fucking fear, the shame and guilt, all the core beliefs from that I believed growing up. You know, I grew up in an environment where we were single parent. You know, two younger siblings. My mother suffered with mental health. There was no father or figure in the home. You know, and there was a lot of stuff went on. Sure, Do you know, in education. I wasn't. I'm dyslexic. Maybe ADHD as well. And I couldn't even sit still inside in the classroom. Mm. And the school didn't understand how to deal with me. And there was another few fellas in the same class. They were going through the same stuff for him as well. You know, but that was it. It was that nice. But after that, I had to learn how to deal with emotions. I never knew what an emotion was. I hadn't a clue. I'd, I'd, so, like, when you had the, what I would call, like, the, the fog, the cathartic moment, like, that, that, you, you never went back. I was drank. You never went back. Never drank, never drove, didn't gamble. Never got involved in crime, yeah, still yeah. didn't involve in drugs or any other form of criminality. There's know? a great book I should recommend to your readers, by the way. Sorry to interrupt you, my apologies. Yeah. Oh, has to. Oh, has to. The book is one that I came across many, many years ago about that topic, right? And I have read it, and I have said it's the most inspirational book I've ever read about the topic that we're discussing, and I'd like to mention it to your readers. If you have not heard of it, it is simply mind-blowing. It's called The Grass Arena. Uh, it's written by a fellow called John Healy. And it's about you mm. and people who have had your enormous challenge constantly and repeatedly. And it's a book about redemption. Yeah. And it's just What's it called? The Grass? It's called The Grass Arena. The Grass Arena. Written by a man who's an Englishman with Irish background. Sounds like a cock man, John Healy. He, his family would be Cork. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a common name in Cork. But I have recommended it to so many people. But I interrupted you, Tim. Sorry, my apologies. Um, no, but even like more or less finished. Anyway, yeah. I was just, I was just going to say, like it. Just you have to deal with after that. Then you have to. I had to deal with prison. Yeah. To deal with all the trauma and. But I kept growing. You know, it wasn't one thing. I kept growing from different things. You know, yeah. and that was twelve years ago today. Yeah. And I can cope today. Twelve years ago today. Uh, or like not, not exactly yeah, today. Like, yeah, I was going to give you congratulations yeah, now. I can process yeah, stuff yeah. when it comes up. But when I was in that life, mm. I had two forms of thinking. Mm. I, one form was where am I going to get more money for drugs? Mm -hmm. And when I was on drugs, it was, it was just about what else can get me more stoned. Mm. That was it. Because when I wasn't drinking or drugging, I was thinking about it and planning and planning. I could never, there was no space in my head for anything mm. else. My family, work, there was nothing. Mm. You know, and I, that's why me and James can relate to people mm. on the streets, um, in prisons, mm. you know, people who are really struggling with their you must, you must see it yourself down through the years, Frank, where you have a client that's coming into you and sometimes people be coming into you over their life cycle, teens, 20s, 30s, 40s. But you know, fellas, that break out of it. Mm. You, can, you can see the shift in consciousness must be happening or the spiritual it's awakening right, yeah. over time. But have you any maybe opinions or theories? Is it, is it maturity? I know there's the, the, the theory in criminology where people naturally age out of crime at certain ages. Or what it's the, actually what you're talking about where you're so deep-rooted in oh, geez, disaster, nightmare, 
uh, stuff that actually the people can't comprehend unless you are in it, I think, yeah. myself, and unless you experience it. And it's that kind of... The consequences have to get so bad. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And But you also have to be able to... There has to be help available to you. It's very hard to do it on your own, but the, the, the decision to do it is your own decision. Once you make the decision, and people make the decision, you know, and go back and fall back, get back again and keep at it. Um, you know, uh, for me, at the end of the day, it's a personal decision. Mm-hmm. What, what makes it happen is the realisation. And I often say to lads who are, you know, they're saying, and I say guys like, very bright guys too, you know, guys who are clearly very smart guys who are in jail on the wrong side of the glass panel. Who can see the potential in them. And I just tell them, like, not naming any name, I just say, yeah, Johnny, whoever it is, I know from talking to you, there's much more to your life than this. I know that if you, you know, can do it, crack it, get out of it, you can actually have a no... You know what what I tell guys, if I can get them to... Like guys like that, like some of the stupid things maybe I say is like, you know, when you're at home or you're not in custody, what do you do? We should be all know what they do. Like, I say, stupid, like, do you ever go out? Do you just ever go for a walk? Oh, yes. Walk around. Do you ever go out? Yeah. Do you give yourself any time for yourself? <laughs> do you have any time for yourself? I do. I go away at the weekend. I go out to Kerry or I play a bit of golf. Nice one. Uh, so I do, absolutely. But Eric... My phone is all, I have to keep my phone on all the time. Yeah. I get calls all the time, day and night from the police. Is that difficult to manage that one? Partner? Sometimes, yeah. I have Eric people working in the office, my good colleagues, you know, etc. But I'd be the name, so the call comes in to me from whoever's in the custody area. You just process them, try and do with them. I'm sure there's courts and all that's every weekend, Saturday, Sunday. Special sittings. It's special sittings. There was never any of that stuff years ago. So that's an endless requirement. But just things that I do with guys, like, you know, I just, I, I do talk to lads about yeah. stuff, you know, and yeah. I, I must say. And I, I, I try to pick, you know, in my, in my chats with guys, like, first of all, you have to have a good connection with whoever you're talking to. You have to try to figure out what's been going on. You have to try to figure out whether there are mental health concerns that make communication a bit different here than it might be otherwise. Um, I, I do try to tell people you know there's there's first of all there's a different life to this and they recognize that i do try to tell them about going back to education trying to you know i I try to see what might be of interest what might give them a kind of a spark of reaction to a suggestion we should send them to watch or listen to the two and they might hear somebody they, they, they can relate with yeah. and tell them subscribe while they're there but before we let you go home Frank because it's getting late I just want to ask a quick one or two questions about Ian Bailey because yeah. that's by far the most high profile case probably in recent history in Ireland anyway the media attention Jim Sheridan documentaries Netflix documentaries it's amazing the, the coverage that it has gotten and depending on what I'm watching or what I'm listening to, I go back and forth with, he did it, he didn't do it, he did it, he didn't do it. Why do you think that this murder, or do you think it's because, as Timmy touched on earlier on, our own class, I think it's the class of the victim 
um, because she was, you know, of high high class and you know a director's wife and all these things, a rich person. Um, what do you think contributes to the media attention? And um, like, what's your opinion on the phenomenon of it between podcasts and everything? Well, in answer to the first part of your question, you're absolutely right. When it when it was realised <clears throat> over here, I'd say within you know, 36, 48 hours that this was a person of consequence. I've often kind of imagined a scene where I think close to reality, somebody along the lines of the president of France calls the Taoiseach, almost like saying, do you know who's dead over there? Yeah. And then from there on in, this realization, we gotta get this one sorted. The rush to judgment you know, all that stuff that we learned about in the case that I yeah. took and yeah, that kind of stuff. So the, the answer to that question is absolutely her stage was in Paris and France generally was a huge issue in relation to not only the interest of the time and all that, the female, you know, all that kind of stuff, but also the continuation of the interest. But then uh, uh, that has also kept it going. I mean, it's extraordinary that the French kind of wouldn't accept the way in which our society and our justice system approached the question of you know, Ian Bailey's non-involvement, but yet he was to all this stuff. And the insistence, three times, by the way, that, that they should have him over there. Because but there was an audacity to that. Like, well, there was, like, yeah. like, no or them, It was like this, there are them stupid Irish that don't know what they're doing, let the yes. French deal with stuff. Like, we have our own systems here, whether he's guilty or not. Like, our system has, has, has said that he should not be prosecuted. What, what jurisdiction or right have they to come in to tell us, oh, you're wrong? Do you know what I mean? Let us take it. It's an imperialistic jurisdiction, actually, because we're non-imperialist historically, but the French are imperialistic, and their law says that they can claim jurisdiction to protect the lives of citizens from France, no matter where they are in the world. So that's that stuff. And answer the second part of your question about the, the whodunit element. Yeah. Like, I spent a lot of time analysing the so-called evidence in relation to Ian Bailey because we did a big long case and we I did other things for him in what you call resistance to extradition and all this business. If you sat down now and you figure that out after a bit of time, you would figure out that it was a tissue and that it was he said, she said, and then she said, he said, and it was all he said, he said this to her and he said this to somebody else. And there's a public document out there which we accessed and most unusual circumstances during the extradition appeal to the Supreme Court, which was called the the DPP critical analysis, 44 pages. People don't maybe much know that it's out there. It is. It just demolished the police so-called evidence against Ian Bailey. It just wiped the floor with it to the extent that I remember when I got it the first time, I went, Jesus, like, this stuff is unbelievable. Mm. That's what the DPP thought all along. The purpose of the document was to tell the police why they had just made a monumental bags of the case that they probably behaved possibly criminally, certainly grossly negligently, and in a, and in a very famous expression, thoroughly flawed and prejudiced inquiry. So like, you're asking me, you know, and you, you vary your views from he did it, he didn't do it. If you sat down, uh, even with the best will in the world, on the he did it side of the house, the only reason I guarantee you 
Well, you might have thought he did it. Sure, he must have done it. Blah blah blah. Who else did it? That's because, what you're well, like, the reason why is because the dogs in the street said he did it. Uh, the police said he did it. The media said he did it. But saying it, that's what happened to him. You see, that. he became the ideal candidate. Look at him. He's English. He had a bit of a history with, very sadly, with Madame. Uh, sorry, with Jules Thomas. Yeah. But like. What kind of character is he, is he to, to you? What kind of, like you've been working for a long time. 20 odd years, yeah. Like what, what, what kind of character is he? His mentality has been destroyed over this. Yeah. I never knew him before since then. How does he cope? I don't know how he like, copes, to be honest with you. Too. He's not in a good place, but. Not, oh, like, a mess. as you say, like what, is there a more high, high profile murder that remains unsolved in this jurisdiction? Absolutely not. The fear that he had about being removed, for example, just that alone, when he was ordered to be extradited from Ireland to France in 2010, you're like, get out, get over to some other country. I had a French lawyer advising me about the French legal system, <laughs> whatever about our place. He hadn't a prayer of a trial over there. He was gone. to the slaughter, like. No, he'd gone, gone. And what he was saying to me was, not only is he gone, like he'll die in jail, because he'll never be found again. You come over and try to visit him over here, says he. He'll be moved from pillar to post to next pillar, next post. They'll move him to this jail, that jail. <laughs> he won't even know where he is. Mm. He's gone. And I remember being very conscious. Like, Some pressure as well. No, that's acting for an innocent person. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, you know, defending that extradition, right? I've always, and I've said it in other public, you know, contributions. That's my death penalty case. That was the only death penalty case I ever did because that guy was a goner. Yeah. He was going to die in jail. It was my attitude if we can't fight. And, and, you know, the curious thing was, in a funny, at a tangent, but nonetheless critically so, it was a, a challenge on behalf of the Irish justice system as if some outside country was attacking the worth of what we have here as if somehow it was second rate or third rate and it couldn't be relied upon. And as you say, I should we do a grand job over there? Who well, wasn't there actors in the Irish state facilitating that? There were. Up until Including. the Supreme Court judge kind of put the foot down then. The state facilitated it by providing what they call mutual assistance when the minister could have said to the French authorities, sorry, you're not getting our file. We've had our system here. He's gone through it. No. But we shovel it out to them. And that was the first act. That was in 2008, by the way. They asked for it in 2008 to get the file. We agreed to give it and at a political level. And if we had not given that file to the French police, they would not have sought to extradite him to be either questioned or prosecuted, as the case might be. So we did it to ourselves. We didn't have to do that. But sure, of course, we had to kowtow. Yeah. But justice was solved in the end, in your way. Well, our, in terms of like he didn't yeah, get prosecuted. Our system, our Supreme Court, and then followed twice afterwards by the High Courts, which followed the judgment, said, sorry, we're standing up for our system. And the Supreme Court, because the High Court judge said he could be put out, by the way, but the Supreme Court said, absolutely not. And, uh, you know, there was a very strong set of you know, judgments, all you can read them, saying, forget about it. Um, you know, so like, yes, we did. We, but it took him... Yeah. Fighting it as as an individual to get the court to because the state went hammer and tongs to mm. get him out mm. hammer and tongs mm. some going yeah come here we're going to let it go thanks for your time before you go 
With a lot of miles on the clock, Frank. <laughs> Are you going to be put out to pasture anytime soon? Is there a few years left in you? Uh, I'd hate to say uh, what my intentions are, lads, but I will remain at it for another while. I have people to be worried about and people to think about. So, you know, I, but I won't be announcing it. I'll ease out the back door nice and quietly because, you know, no one wants any fanfare. Okay, well, when you do, enjoy it. And thanks for time. It's been thanks a pleasure. Join us. Thank yeah. you so I, it's my pleasure, lads. Thank and thank you very much indeed to both of you. Not and I really appreciate what you're doing, guys. Thank you. Thank you. It has a lot of meaning for a lot of people. Thanks. Thank you. Very kind. Thank you. God bless. Thanks, everyone. God Thanks, Frank. The Tunaris podcast is proudly sponsored by Inline Eco, your trusted partner in asbestos removal and re-roofing services across Ireland. Your peace of mind and safety are our top priorities. For more information, visit inlineeco.ie. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.